Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We've said it once and we'll say it again. The Sony PlayStation represents a moment in gaming where it felt as though the future was within our grasp. While in retrospect the system had its limitations, bizarre 3D rendering, stunted video playback, a low resolution, and initially releasing with controllers that didn't work well with 3D environments, developers created many new experiences that pushed for greater immersion and storytelling. Interesting mechanics that weren't possible before, and environments that oozed atmosphere. And with it being the 90s, you could even play your music CDs to pump out Limp Bizkit at the highest quality. The console was home to titles like the tactical espionage-centric Metal Gear Solid, the moody and gothic tones of Castlevania Symphony of the Night, professional wheelman simulator Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, film tie-in 007 Tomorrow Never Dies, indie productions like Devil Dice, and the only slightly derivative action-adventure game Alundra. But we'll start off today's episode with a classic that everyone knows, Crash Bandicoot. Back in the game's very earliest days as Project Willy the Wombat, Mark Cerny apparently was commissioning Hanna-Barbera Cartoon Studios to create and develop the character known only at that time as Willy. That was the name that Jason Rubin had chosen for his main character in his six-page brief. Hanna-Barbera Studios were just around the corner from Universal Studios, making them an ideal partner. The artist who the studio assigned to the project was a young Butch Hartman, creator of The Fairly Odd Parents and Danny Phantom. But all Hartman knew about the character was that they span around and smashed into crates, and he'd read that wombats had beaver-like teeth, so his designs ended up being a hybrid between a beaver and Taz the Tasmanian Devil. If you've ever played or even just seen Crash Bandicoot, you'll know that this particular design was outright rejected. But now for a classic that few remember, probably the best Zelda clone ever made, Alundra. The studio that localized Alundra for the West, Working Designs, stated that during the localization process, they'd lowered the health of the game's enemies from the Japanese version, but increased their attack. This would ostensibly make things move along more quickly, and enemies would be more dangerous and exciting. However, this was a complete lie. Almost every single enemy in the game actually received an HP boost in the Western release, with nearly 30 enemies and bosses having an extra 50% or more health. Another interesting aspect of the game's localization appears with the character of Bonaire, who takes on a very typical surfer dude persona, though in the Japanese version of the game, this wasn't the case. The character's dialogue was altered and used as a representation of one of the game's main localizers, Zach Meston. One of the game's localization staff, Victor Ireland, stated on the Game FAQ's message board, Bonaire just looked like a surfer dude to me, and his dialogue came out of conversations back and forth with Zack. He was basically a proxy for Zack, who wrote quite a bit in the game as well. As it went along, I encouraged him to turn up the volume on that character and make him a more exaggerated version of his secret self. The Japanese version of him was boring, and the name was different. 
This explains why the character may seem a bit odd compared to others, particularly the dialogue, Dude, it's okay if not everyone here believes in the gods. The faith of a few and a little weed is all we need, bro. In all honesty though, if you are a fan of the Zelda franchise, you would be doing yourself a favor to check out Alundra if you haven't already done so. Alundra's translation was taken on by a fairly small team, but the team behind one other release has perhaps even more humble origins. Long before the PS1, home systems often had an emphasis on players being able to create their own games for the system. This tradition seemed to die off slowly over time, with most of the major contenders of the home console space being closed off. Sony wanted to change this approach with the PlayStation and provided customers with the choice to purchase a homebrew development kit, which simply looked like a black PlayStation called the Netyarosi. Most games created by Netyarosi developers that saw any kind of release would see their way onto various PS1 demo discs, but one game managed to bag itself a full-blown commercial release. Devil Dice, a title developed by Shift, was lifted out of obscurity and given space as a full commercial game thanks to Sony taking notice. The title, which is a rather unique puzzle game, managed to go on to become a massive success, selling well over a million copies worldwide, with over 850,000 being sold in Japan alone. The NetEurosi platform actually brought many would-be game developers out of the woodwork, including people like Kenkichi Shimuka, the creator of Ape Escape, or Mitsuru Kamiyamam, who would go on to direct the Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicle series for Square Enix. Another strong aspect of the PlayStation was its advanced audio capabilities, which worked well for the James Bond franchise, a franchise well known for its musical numbers with each film featuring a major artist to sing its opening theme. While the games don't always follow this same pattern, 007 Tomorrow Never Dies had a curiosity with a track that appears within the game's data. While never heard in-game, the track is referenced in the game's opening music credit sequence as Tomorrow Never Dies 2, though the track has been officially titled Letter to Paris, as seen on the game's official soundtrack. Code for the track does exist in the game's data, but it seems it must have been cut from the title at some stage, only appearing on the OST as a bonus hidden track. The song, composed by Tommy Tallarico and performed by Elaine Piver, is likely one of the most obscure and rare official musical numbers within the James Bond franchise. And it's, uh, it's actually pretty jamming. Another classic on the PS1 is Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, which has some unlikely inspiration. The idea to have players collect videotapes was directly inspired by the collection of stars in Super Mario 64. In designing the objectives, the team would gather at a table, draw a level, and then ask what could be done within said level, upon which the team members would provide ideas. Some rejected concepts from these sessions include levels taking place on a highway and a jetty, and a scenario in which the player would lose a wheel and have to skate on three wheels. That said, one level taking place on a highway-like strip was implemented during development, but was ultimately cut. This level was called Downhill, and was almost an exact copy of a level from Sega's arcade title, Top Skater, which is probably why it was cut. 
The level would later be heavily reworked and implemented in the PS1 and Nintendo 64 versions of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 with the same name, this time set in Rio de Janeiro. One of our personal favourite games on the system is a continuation in a series that changed said series forever. Castlevania Symphony of the Night saw the return of Dracula's son, Alucard, and gave the player access to a more substantial set of abilities compared to earlier Castlevania releases. In a 1997 interview with the game's director, Koji Igarashi, and designer Toshiharu Furukawa, they were asked how they came up with ideas for the game's huge assortment of weapons and items. Igarashi stated that they used a variety of different references, books, and other materials, and tried to include things that had never been used in a Castlevania game before. Furukawa added that each of the staff members had a special attachment to a different kind of blade, so they ended up using a good variety of blades in the final game. However, this bias did result in the developer's favourite weapons being overpowered, adding that not realising that no one liked shields was a bit of a blind spot. During the planning stages of the game, they also came up with an alignment system. If the player used a lot of sub-weapons, they'd gain a holy alignment. If they used a lot of magic, they would gain a dark alignment. There would be different endings based on these alignments with various subtitles, with Igarashi citing one of them being named Sima no Toriru, something like the Trill of Light and Darkness. A trill is a musical ornament where two adjacent notes, holy and evil, alternate rapidly. The reason for this feature's removal is unknown. Speaking of titles that changed a series, according to Final Fantasy VII's art director Yusuke Nayora, he liked how his design of the city of Midgar turned out and had envisioned the city in his head as a pizza while he was designing it. This inspiration was actually referenced within the game itself. After the first avalanche mission at the start of the game, Barrett will talk to Cloud about the upper plate of Midgar, saying, the upper world, a city on a plate. It's because of that fucking pizza that people underneath are suffering. Nayola's inspiration is also referenced in the name of the song Underneath the Rotting Pizza, which prominently plays in many of the slum areas in Midgar. There's other interesting references in the game as well. The katakana for the enemy Gigi can also be read as Ziggy, the persona of David Bowie in Ziggy Stardust. The enemy model is based on this pun, looking like Ziggy Stardust and with a guitar for a tail. Both Gigi and the enemy it has fought alongside with Christopher use song attacks and Christopher uses an attack called Stardust March, but only if Gigi is still alive. Next up, how about a little bit about the classic tactical espionage game Metal Gear Solid? According to a 1998 PlayStation Magazine interview with director, producer, writer, and general everything man Hideo Kojima, as well as designer and artist Yoji Shinkawa, Kojima originally had no intentions of adding the cyborg ninja character design for Grey Fox to the game, and that Shinkawa only drew the character because it's cool. At first, Shinkawa thought Grey Fox should have looked like a normal enemy soldier. He had several different ideas in mind and thought to try drawing a cyborg-ish and ninja-looking guy, of which the final design came out as a result. Despite Shinkawa wanting his design to become the main character in his own game, it didn't. Raiden, however, became a cyborg ninja in Metal Gear Solid 4 Guns of the Patriots, and later became the main character of his own game in Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. So in some small way, Shinkawa got to see his idea realized. 
Did you know? Neversoft, the company behind Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, originally developed games for a toy company. After departing a small video game development company owned by Malibu Comics called Malibu Interactive, Joel Jewitt, Mick West, and Chris Ward founded Neversoft Entertainment. They first found work with Playmates Toys, developing a Sega Saturn game based on the television show Skeleton Warriors. As development continued, Neversoft grew, and by 1996, the staff consisted of over 20 people. Unfortunately, the days ahead were less than favorable. Neversoft worked for Crystal Dynamics on a game based on Ghost Rider, but it was cancelled due to financial problems. They then began to design their own game, an action-packed shooter called Big Guns. The project was bought by Sony Computer Entertainment, who then began to make changes. Big Guns was renamed to Exodus, and the design was changed from a mech shooter to an action-adventure game featuring a girl who morphed into a cat creature. Sony cancelled the game in November of 1997, and Neversoft shrunk down to just 12 employees. In January 2008, Neversoft was nearly out of funds, but was saved by Activision. Activision was looking for someone to develop a game called Apocalypse, and saw promise in the Big Guns game engine. Neversoft signed on to design Apocalypse, and Activision also requested Neversoft to develop a prototype of a skateboarding game. Development was mainly focused on creating Apocalypse, but the skateboarding prototypes that were made impressed Activision, and after development on Apocalypse had finished, the 15-man team began working on what would later be named Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. The first person to ride a board in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater was none other than Bruce Willis. Neversoft started development using the same engine they made for Apocalypse, in which Bruce Willis played the main character. His character model was the first to ride around on a board during the early stages of the games. In fact, Bruce Willis was still on the board when they took the game's first demo to Tony Hawk to try and convince him to join the project. In a quote from co-founder Joel Jewitt, he recalls showing Hawk the demo. The first demo, the one we showed to Tony Hawk to get him on board, had Bruce Willis on a skateboard. He was still holding a gun, I think. As the project moved forward, Bruce Willis's model was taken off the board, but lived on for a short while in the downtown level as a statue, which was completely removed by the time of release. Tony Hawk wasn't just a face and a name, though, and after signing his likeness over to Neversoft, he took on an active role in the game's development. Each time Neversoft finished a new build of the game, a copy was sent to Tony Hawk for review. If he saw anything that didn't appear to accurately reflect the skateboarding scene, he would report back to Neversoft. He also participated in motion capture for the game, a process that was mostly abandoned by the time that the second game was released, however would eventually be reincorporated in later Tony Hawk's installments. Customers first got their hands on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater in the form of a demo that appeared on multiple demo discs, including the PlayStation Underground's Jam Pack Summer 99 disc and a disc given out at Pizza Hut restaurants. The demo allowed players to control Tony Hawk and Bob Burnquist and featured either the Chicago or Warehouse level. The demo was available over four months before the full game actually came out, and provided Neversoft with valuable feedback on what changes needed to be made to the finished product. The demo discs also helped create excitement for the game, which contributed to its success upon release. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater first appeared on the PlayStation on August 31st, 1999. In some regions, it was released as Tony Hawk's Skateboarding, as the word skater implies ice skating in some countries. It was then ported to the Nintendo 64 Dreamcast and Engage, and an adaptation was released for the Game Boy Color. 
Not all of the content that was originally intended for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater made it into the game, and not all ports of the game are identical. An early beta version of the game reveals content that was changed or completely removed from the official release. Aesthetic differences between the beta and final release include a change to the splash screen and logo, different fonts on the end run menu, and that the trick called Fast Plant was originally called Foot Plant. The bonus point items look different as well, appearing as glowing rings in the beta instead of the metallic point icons that appear in the final release. The game's beta also contains two levels that were removed completely. The first, a level called Downhill, was a long level without much to do. The objective was to pick up tapes, and although a lot of work appeared to have already been done on the level, it never made it into the final game. The second level, Freeway, was mostly empty. It consisted of part of a highway overpass and not much else. The player could hop off and skate around below the freeway, but it was clear that not much work had been completed on the level, and it was eventually abandoned. Users claiming to have obtained a hacked version of the beta also accessed an area called Test Level. This mysterious and eerie level was mostly devoid of color and had strange physics, allowing the player to ride completely upside down. There is little information available on this level, aside from the claim that it was hacked from a direct rip of the beta. Another hacker claimed to be able to skate around the beta levels as a taxi, and even provided a handful of screenshots. Some levels that did make it into the final build of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater had to be scaled back. Both the San Francisco and downtown levels had hidden areas that had to be removed because of size constraints. The ports of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater weren't all identical. Due to the smaller amount of memory available on its cartridges, the Nintendo 64 version had fewer music tracks than the PlayStation version, and some of the songs were reworked and looped to save space. There were also a few changes put in place to accommodate the Nintendo 64's younger user base. Blood was removed, and the names of some of the gaps and transfers were made more appropriate, such as the Handy Gap being changed to the Spanky Gap, the Long Ass Grind being renamed to the Big Daddy Grind, and the Holy Shit becoming Holy Cow. A mysterious cheat code was also put into the Nintendo 64 port of the game. Once it was entered, it would present the player with a black and white photo of a girl. Many have speculated this to be Tony Hawk's then-wife Erin Lee, although it doesn't appear to have ever been confirmed, and the code was simply referred to as Girl's Picture. The Dreamcast version of Pro Skater came out on June 29th of the year 2000, nearly a year after it appeared on the PlayStation and mere months before the sequel was released. Despite this, the port received widespread acclaim and was seen by many critics as the best version of the game. The port featured better graphics, more animations, and the Dreamcast VMU displayed score and ratings as the player accumulated points. Did you know? Despite the fact that Mega Man Legends sold very poorly, producer Keiji Anafane credits the game for his success in the industry. Anafane told attendees of GDC 2012, I was very excited, very passionate, and very confident about this game. However, the Mega Man series was slightly on the decline, and perhaps the expectation levels were not as high as the previous games. Therefore, we weren't able to sell or promote the game as we expected, and failed to attract an audience. He went on to explain, after the enormous popularity of Resident Evil 2, he might have become intoxicated by his own success and stopped trying as a result. But the commercial failure of Legends grounded him and allowed him to see the importance of rising to the challenge and fighting back. Legends had a small budget and released earlier than expected. 
As a result, some ideas had to be scaled back or removed entirely. During the planning stages, the developers intended to include another synthetic life form similar to Mega Man and Juno. Design documents refer to him as Evil Rockman, or by extension Evil Mega Man, and he would have been an enemy not only of Mega Man but also of the Bonds. This early character relation chart also suggests Evil Rockman would have misled Mega Man into believing he was an ally. The developers also planned on including a human rival for Mega Man named Artillery. The official Japanese website had a comment about the character from programmer Katsunori Oida. Back in one of the early scenarios, Rockman was going to have a romantic rival competing for Roll's affection. Dare we say she would have even been charmed by him. Bring Tron into the picture and you'd have an amusing four-sided love triangle. Artillery still appears in the game as a recurring townie with a gun holster, but his role was reduced to that of a background character. Mega Man and his allies were also going to have a fifth crew member aboard the Flutter. She would have been an assistant to Professor Beryl as well as the ship's resident nurse. Early concept art depicts the nurse with a giant syringe for an arm, but later designs took on a more traditional human form. Like Artillery, the character still appears in the final game as a generic NPC. There is more concept art that reveals an entire unseen world beyond Catalog's Island, including advanced cities atop enormous cogs. Another illustration depicts a city submerged under the ocean, suggesting the story could have delved below the surface of the flooded world. Another piece of art shows what appears to be a home for the Casket family. Catalog's Island also looked very different in early designs. The Apple market was more narrow, but it appeared to go on for longer. The market went through more changes during development, as seen in an early demo of the game that was distributed exclusively in Japan. The stores are on opposite sides, and there are a series of alleyways that are open to the sky. The music store is different, and many of the townspeople have different faces. Mega Man is also shorter in the demo, which is likely due to the character originally being around the age of 10 rather than 14. This early version also has data suggesting some story segments might have been planned to take place at night. Unused graphics left in the demo's game data includes nighttime textures for all of the buildings and objects. The final Japanese name for the game, Rockman Dash, is actually an acronym standing for Dig Outer's Adventure Stories and the Halcyon Days. Dig Outer is the Japanese name for the digger job in the English version, and Halcyon Days refers to a term from Greek mythology. It describes a period of peace that takes place at specific times in the calendar, when storms never occur and the winds and waves are calm. The name Dash was also chosen to commemorate the Mega Man series' 10th anniversary to symbolize the fact that Mega Man was boldly moving into a new generation of 3D polygonal graphics. A few of the locations in Mega Man Legends were named after developers of the game. The Kardon Forest, or Kadon no Mori in Japanese, was named after Kazunori Kadoi, the game's engine designer and 3D model animator. The Closer Woods, or Kurozo no Mori, gets its name from scenario and event planner Shin Kurosawa. Lake Jin, or Junko, is based on head programmer Masaru Ijuin. And finally, Masahiro Yasuma was the inspiration for the Yas Plains, or Yasu no Sougen in Japanese. At one point in the game, Mega Man is able to tell the shop owner his name is Hippopotamus as a gag. This was added in by planner Shin Kurosawa, and it actually has a hidden meaning. Kurosawa explained on the Capcom devlog, the joke is that the Japanese word for hippopotamus is kappa, which is baka when spelled backwards. Baka in Japanese means something along the lines of idiot. When Rockman Dash was localized for North America, some of the game's content was censored or removed. The comic book from one of Jim's side quests was originally an erotic magazine. The PSP port of Rockman Dash, which was not released overseas, also changes the magazine to a comic book. The Japanese version enabled players to kick non-aggressive dogs as well as shoot birds out of the sky. 
This was removed in the North American version, likely due to cultural differences. The Japan-exclusive Rockman Dash Adventure Guidebook revealed information about the design for the servbot that came as a surprise to nobody. They were, in fact, inspired by LEGO characters. The passage also mentions that early on, the servbots were planned to remove their heads and place them on different bodies and vehicles. Capcom developed a bit of an affinity for the servbots and included references to them in many other games. In fact, when Capcom recruits new graphic artists, part of their training is to create 3D servbot models. According to web planner Kinako Akawa, despite the servbot's seemingly simplistic design, getting their facial features and bodily proportions right is actually quite hard. The tragic news of Capcom pulling the plug on Mega Man Legends 3 in 2011 was especially hard on gamers, as it had been over a decade since the debut of Mega Man Legends 2. However, unknown to many fans in the West, the series had a game released exclusively in Japan as recent as 2008. It was a surprisingly full-featured mobile game starring Mega Man, Roll, and the Bonds. The title roughly translates to Rockman Dash Great Adventure on Five Islands, and the storyline takes place between Legends 1 and 2. Initial downloads began with two islands, and the other three were released later as downloadable content. The long-awaited digital re-releases of the first two Legends games on the PlayStation Network were thought to be impossible for many years. Capcom told fans they were no longer legally allowed to distribute Mega Man Legends without extra negotiation with additional license holders, all because of a few minor details in the game. The infringing content in question included the soda machines, which used imagery from the real-life brand Oranomen C Energy Drinks, and the YAG building in Uptown, which depicted the logo of the Yoyogi Animation Gakuin, an actual Japanese animation school. During an Ask Capcom livestream, corporate officer Christian Svensson explained that Capcom has a reoccurring issue with games released prior to the year 2000. This was because license contracts at that time didn't consider that games might be re-released in the future. One way to get around this would be to simply change the graphics, but Sony has a strict rule against changing the content of PS1 classics. Despite repeatedly denying that a re-release would ever see the light of day, Capcom eventually worked out the legal details thanks to a few dedicated employees. The game was released digitally for the first time in 2015. Its price was higher than most PS1 classics, likely because of the legal hurdles, but Capcom pointed out that $9.99 was much less than the going rate of used physical copies online. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know? Pepsi Man on the original PlayStation wasn't Pepsi Man's first appearance in a video game. The character had a guest appearance in the Japanese Sega Saturn version of Sega's Fighting Vipers. Unlocking Pepsi Man requires the player to fight against a CPU opponent without pressing any inputs. Pepsi Man will then tag in and fight the player, and beating him will add him to the player select screen. Pepsi Man was included thanks to a deal between Pepsi and Sega, which also added several Pepsi ads throughout the game. Along with Pepsi Man, these ads were removed from the game's international release. 
Although Pepsi Man's appearance in Fighting Vipers is relatively unknown, there's an even more obscure Pepsi Man game. Between the release of Fighting Vipers and Pepsi Man on the PS1, Sigma Enterprises released a Pepsi Man arcade game. The title was a simple rock-paper-scissors gambling game, and released exclusively in Japan in 1997. Although Pepsi Man was created for the Japanese market, the character was designed by a Canadian comic book artist. The character was designed in the mid-90s by Travis Charest, who also contributed to comics in the expanded Star Wars universe. The Pepsi Man ads eventually led to the creation of Pepsi Woman, who only seems to deliver diet Pepsi drinks to women. In the Pepsi Man commercials, Pepsi Man runs as fast as he can to deliver soda to thirsty people in need, and after delivering the Pepsi, he often injures himself in a slapstick manner. It's believed these traits inspired the PlayStation game's design, as it's a runner game with comical hit animations. Throughout the game, the player is shown real-life cutscenes of a man drinking Pepsi. The actor in these scenes is Mike Butters, who would later land a recurring role in the Saw movies as the character Paul. According to the game's 3D modeler, Kotaro Uchikoshi, the real-world cutscenes were a symptom of the game's small budget. This proved to be a wise decision on behalf of the game's developer Kid, as Pepsi Man reportedly sold poorly. Despite the subpar sales, however, the game did have a chance of being localized in America. According to a 1999 GameSpot article, a notable US publisher was trying to bring the game to the USA. The game ultimately stayed in Japan, which is peculiar seeing as the game is entirely voiced in English. This usually makes video games easier to bring to the West, which suggests that the game's lack of localization was possibly due to licensing issues. In an interview for the untold history of Japanese game developers, Uchikoshi also mentioned some questionable working conditions at KIT. He and a few other developers were stationed at a desk nicknamed the Edge of the Cliff. The name was to remind the group that they were disposable and could be pushed off the team and replaced easily at any time. Although the PlayStation game is rather short, it has a fair amount of unused content such as unused assets and early versions of levels. One of the most noteworthy files is an unused audio clip from the start of the level. The audio is of a cheerleader explaining that she and her team are exhausted and need Pepsi Man to bring them soda to perk the girls up. Several development tools can also be accessed with Action Replay and GameShark codes. The Cutting Room Floor co-admin Devin found a functional level editor within the game's data. The editor allows players to select objects and place them throughout a stage, and levels can even be saved to a memory card. Another tool that can be accessed is a debug menu. This menu gives access to various test features such as a sound test, a texture mapping test, a motion test, an object viewer, an object editor, and the ability to start from any level in the game. One scene from the PlayStation game is directly lifted from a Pepsi Man commercial. In the scene, Pepsi Man is chased by what seems to be a Coca-Cola branded 18-wheeler through San Francisco. Because the game released in 1999, some believe this level directly inspired a scene in Sonic Adventure 2. Two years after Pepsi Man's release, Sonic Adventure 2 has Sonic being chased by an 18-wheeler through a San Francisco-inspired level. Did you know? In its earliest stages, Tekken wasn't a fighting game or a video game at all. It was originally a project that experimented with 3D character modeling during the early years of polygonal graphics. The idea of adapting it into a fighting game came after Namco hired several former Sega employees who had previously worked on Virtua Fighter. These employees included Saichi Ishii, who served as the lead producer for Tekken 1 and 2 before passing the reins on to Katsuhiro Harada. The team's goal was to make a game similar to Virtua Fighter, but use fully modeled textures and have the game run at twice Virtua 
fighter's frame rate. Early promotional material also showed that the project was named Rave War before the name Tekken was chosen. Tekken has long been associated with Sony's PlayStation consoles and didn't appear on competitors' hardware until 2001 with Tekken Advance. According to the series producer Katsuhiro Harada, this was due to similarities between the original PlayStation hardware and the arcade cabinets Tekken was built for. Harada also told Polygon that Namco only brought the series to non-Sony platforms when the demand was high enough. Some of the stranger mini-games in the Tekken series began as off-the-wall ideas from the developers. In an interview with Silicon Era, Harada mentioned that Tekken Force, first introduced in Tekken 3, came from a simple side idea, stating, We wanted to have Tekken characters side-scroll through stages and pick up meat to replenish health. At the beginning, that's what we wanted to do. I know it sounds silly and it's hard to see the purpose, but I really wanted to do that. Tekken Ball, which was also introduced in Tekken 3, was originally designed as a simulation to help practice air juggling. Harada stated, The original idea was to hit the ball and juggle it to a basket, sort of like basketball. It didn't go how I imagined and I was kind of frustrated. If it's not going to be good, I thought I should make it into a versus game. The minigame had to be developed by a small team of three, including Harada himself, so that the other staff could continue working on the main game. The development of Tekken Ball led Harada to experiment with similar minigame ideas, including a pinball minigame. He ultimately believed a ball minigame where players took turns felt more appropriate, leading to the addition of Tekken Bowl in Tekken Tag Tournament. Tekken 3's arcade release contains a trio of unused characters in the game's data. This includes two new characters named Sake and Insect, and Tekken 2's June Kazuma. When asked about Sake, Harada stated that he had the idea of making a playable salmon that could only splash around helplessly while making flapping noises. Because it cost 100 yen, about a dollar, for each player at the arcade, Sake was cut. Namco didn't want players to feel cheated out of their money by playing as a character that couldn't fight at all. Insect, on the other hand, was the result of a bug in the game's coding. According to Harada, the bug made characters' arms, legs, and waist shrink to thin sizes, making them resemble a praying mantis. Development on Insect was quickly dropped, however, due to the large amount of resources being used to make the other new characters. One of Tekken 3's endings was censored for the European and American versions of the game. In the original Japanese version of Tekken 3, Nina Williams' ending shows she and her sister Anna sunbathing. Several men show up to impress her, and Anna receives most of the attention. Out of jealousy, Nina unhooks Anna's bikini top in front of the men, walking away with a smirk. In the European and American versions, however, Nina's ending was changed to her ignoring the men completely, with Anna walking away with a smile instead. Minor controversy affected the release of Tekken 6 as well. In the South Korean version of Tekken 6, Bloodline Rebellion, Alyssa's design had notable alterations, changing her retractable chainsaws into lightsaber-esque beam swords. This version also removed all instances of Alyssa detaching her head, most likely to comply with the country's strict laws on violent content. Debates arose over Leo Cleason and whether or not the character was male or female. Before the release of Tekken 6, both Bandai Namco and Katsuhiro Harada stated that Leo was designed to be gender neutral, as they felt that the roster needed a character players will love regardless of gender. And within the final version of Tekken 6, Leo is referred to with gender neutral terms. Leo's gender was kept secret until a 2011 promotional event held in Cologne, Germany, for the movie Tekken Blood Vengeance. During the event, Harada took to the stage and revealed that Leo was female, a fact soon confirmed confirmed within subsequent games such as Tekken Tag Tournament 2. The announcement of Tekken 7's new fighters sparked especially mixed reception in the West when Lucky Chloe was revealed, including complaints that the character was a furry vocaloid idol. Harada, in response to the negative Western reaction, took to Twitter, stating, I'll make a muscular and skinhead character for you. Remember, I said we've more new characters and she is one of them, and that Lucky Chloe would be exclusive to the Japanese version. While the statement was intended as a joke, several gaming news outlets reported on Lucky Chloe's exclusivity as fact until Harada confirmed that she was, in fact, in 
all versions of the game. Harada was particularly careful with another one of Tekken 7's newcomers, the Saudi Arabian fighter Shaheen. He intended to include the Arabian character in the Tekken series roster as early as 2009, but wanted to visit the region first to get a better sense of its people and culture. He even took to social media asking for feedback from Middle Eastern fans to help with Shaheen's final design. Shaheen was met with very positive reception, even appearing in regional newspapers such as Al Ayam in Bahrain. This reception led Harada to encourage his close friend and fellow producer Yoshinira Ono to include a Middle Eastern character in the roster of Street Fighter V, leading to the announcement of Rashid shortly after. The Tekken series is also known for its Easter eggs. In Tekken 4's Tekken Force mode, four enemies in the final level are named Anthony, John, Chad and Flea after members of the American rock band Red Hot Chili Peppers. In Paul Phoenix and Brian Fury's Tekken 3 stage, a piece of graffiti in the background reads Soul Edge. This is a reference to Soul Blade, another 3D fighting game by Namco, originally named Soul Edge in Japan, and the originator of the Soul Calibur series. Tekken 5's Final Frontier stage has an LED monitor in the background that will, on occasion, show a sprite of Pac-Man. Tekken Tag Tournament 2, however, caused slight controversy over one of its stage designs. The Saudi Arabian stage, Modern Oasis, included a floor decoration with the word Allah written in Arabic. This prompted a negative response from Muslim players, since both stepping on God's name and using God's name in an unnecessary manner are both considered highly disrespectful acts in Islam. When players brought the issue to Katsuhiro Harada's attention on Twitter, he formally apologised for the mistake and the Arabic writing was removed in an update. This was not the first time the Tekken series had run into potential controversy though. Tekken 3 featured a guest fighter named Gon, a fire-breathing dinosaur from a manga series of the same name. Despite the character receiving negative reception at first, he became one of the most requested characters for future titles, most notably Tekken Tag Tournament 2. This led Harada to repeatedly state on Twitter that the character was only allowed in Tekken 3 because of a one-time license and would be very unlikely to make a return appearance. This same license was one of the reasons preventing Tekken 3 from being added to the European PlayStation Store. Hideo Kojima is one of the few video game designers that needs no introduction, with his rich plethora of games from Zone of the Enders to the upcoming Death Stranding and of course his Metal Gear series. Fans have collected, obsessed over and attempted to play every game that has his name attached. This hasn't been a problem, as all his games have been released and translated outside of Japan, with the exception of one. Today we're talking about Police Noughts. Police Noughts was released in 1994 for the NEC PC 9821, with a 3DO port a year later and a release on the PlayStation and Sega Saturn in 1996. Most people consider the Sega Saturn release to be the definitive version of the game for its updated visuals, light gun support and the inclusion of bonus content. Police Noughts is presented through a crime noir cyberpunk aesthetic, taking inspiration from films such as Blade Runner and Lethal Weapon. The game follows the story of Jonathan Ingram, a member of the Police Noughts, a group of five astronauts with extensive police training who are assigned to protect Beyond Coast, the first functioning space colony in the year 2013. While testing a new spacesuit, an accident causes Jonathan to drift from his craft into deep space. Though presumed dead by his team, Jonathan survived the incident with the assistance of a deep sleep module built into his suit, leaving him in a deep slumber for 24 years, waking in the year 2037. Three years after his rescue, Jonathan, who has taken up the profession of a private detective in Old Los Angeles, is visited by his ex-wife Lorraine. She asks Jonathan to assist in solving the case of her missing husband, Kenzo Hojo. The only clues to his avail are a torn leaf, a small collection of pills, and the word Plato. After leaving Jonathan's office, Lorraine is murdered by a man wearing a motorcycle helmet. Unable to catch the assailant, and despite his initial reluctance, Jonathan decides to take on her final request. 
Jonathan travels to beyond, reuniting with his old partner from the LAPD, Ed Brown. The two set out to investigate the suspicious circumstances surrounding both Hojo's disappearance and Lorraine's murder. While primarily a graphic adventure game, Police Noughts also includes puzzle solving and even shooting. With the game's Saturn release, new features were added to allow the player to use the console's Virtua Gun, known as the Stunner in North America, and play these sections as a light gun shooter. The game features a brief bomb disposal section and other smaller sides to the main game. When it comes to investigation, the player is able to inspect objects and question characters multiple times in order to uncover additional information, opening extra dialogue and descriptions. This is a necessity, as often the game restricts progress unless the player probes for more information or investigates all elements of a scene. With certain choices changing the tones and mood of characters, the player's actions can alter the responses that they get. This opens the possibility for multiple ways of progressing through the game. Hideo Kojima's classic style is obviously present throughout the game with its film-like cutscenes, extensive dialogue, and tendency to break the fourth wall. Police Noughts is the first of his games to include summary screens, which remind the player of the plot when loading a save file. It is also the first time he introduces each of the key characters with their name and the voice actor who plays them. Kojima explained how Police Noughts came to be in an interview with The Guardian. While working on Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2, Kojima expressed there was difficulty asking programmers to implement very specific dialogue or music cues because he found that they would work to their own style or timing. He stated, It was hugely frustrating making games at that time for me. I wanted to control everything. So after the second Metal Gear launched, I developed my own scripting engine and decided to work on adventure games so that I could have complete control over when the animation played or when the music was triggered. That's when I developed Snatcher and Police Nords. It was a way to take creative control back from the programmers. Initially conceived under the title Beyond, Konami were unable to claim a copyright on just a single standard word, and thus the game became Police Noughts. The game was also originally going to be listed under the new genre of cinematic virtual reality. This had to be changed to interactive cinema, however, as the term virtual reality had already been trademarked. Four Japanese voice artists went on to have roles in Metal Gear Solid on the PlayStation 1. Hideyuki Tanaka, the voice of Jonathan Ingram in Police Noughts, also voiced Hal Emmerich, or Otakon. Kaneto Shiazawa, who plays Tony Redwood, voiced Grey Fox. Naoko Nakamura plays the BCCH receptionist and played Sniper Wolf. And lastly, Masaharu Sato, who played Salvatore Toscanini, featured as Donald Anderson in MGS. However, it wasn't just voice actors that Kojima carried over into the Metal Gear Solid series. A sample of the End of the Dark track from the Police Not soundtrack is played over the Konami Computer Entertainment logo screen in Metal Gear Solid. Meryl Silverberg also features in the game as part of Vice Unit. Though she isn't actually the same character that's featured in Metal Gear Solid, she has a very similar appearance and she was the last member of Foxhound before it was disbanded after the fall of Zanzibar Land. Incidentally, Metal Gear Solid 4 also references Vice Unit by having Meryl wear a bullet earring like she does in Police Noughts. The Rat Patrol Team 01 consists of Jonathan and Ed in reference to the main characters Jonathan Ingram and the Chief of Vice Ed Brown, who themselves appear to be inspired by Riggs and Murtock from the Lethal Weapon series of films. 
Meryl also wears Dave Forrest's orange jacket in the end scene of Metal Gear Solid, at the same time as Solid Snake also reveals his name to be David. Drebin893 of Metal Gear Solid 4's favourite soda is Narc, the same name as the addictive drug in Police Knots. Otacon seems to be a big fan of Police Knots. In Metal Gear Solid, he has posters of the game on his wall and it's even visually referenced when discussing bipedal tanks. And in Metal Gear Solid 4, it's Otacon's PC desktop wallpaper in the Nomad. The exoskeletons worn by various ninjas throughout the Metal Gear Solid series are made by Tokugawa Heavy Industries, a company featured in Police Knots. These are just a few references Kojima has included in the Metal Gear Solid series. Kojima also lent his own voice to the game in a brief cameo as an AP officer in the shootout at Tokugawa Industries. The game also references other titles published by Konami, such as a shelf of CDs containing musical tracks from different games. While this area is only a minor part of the overall release, it actually takes up a large amount of the game's disc space, totaling one-sixth of the game's overall size. When it came to producing the game, concerns were raised with how much could ultimately be included, with this section being considered the easiest to cut back should storage issues arise. In the opening cutscene of the game, a neon sign can be seen in the background of one of the images that reads Solid Snake. Even Jonathan Ingram's surname could be a reference to the Ingram Mac 11, the submachine gun that is featured in both Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2. There are also several references to Kojima's previous adventure game, Snatcher. In Ishida's Pharmacy, the player can see a Snatcher calendar hanging on the end of a row of shelves. A message on Jonathan's answering machine plays music from a club Outer Heaven featured in Snatcher. A newspaper article on Jonathan's wall is from the Neo Kobe newspaper. Neo Kobe is the fictional city in which Snatcher takes place. Also, in the game Tokimeki Memorial, which was also produced by Hideo Kojima, it is possible to watch a movie of Police Knots. Again, there are plenty more references throughout these games, these are just some of the least obscure. As previously mentioned, there are numerous versions of the game. The initial NEC PC release was the only version to feature the hand-drawn pixel art, as the computer rendered all graphics in real time. These graphics were completely overhauled for the 3DO release and all subsequent releases. The special edition of the 3DO version came bundled with a mouse and an official Police Knots mouse mat. Shortly before this release, Konami put out a demo in the form of a pilot disc. The disc also contained various interviews with voice actors and developers, and even an in-depth encyclopedia about the world of Police Knots. Some of this information came included as extra content in both the PlayStation and Saturn versions. Other than the light gun support for the Saturn and the increased frame rate of the cutscenes from 24 frames per second from the PlayStation's 15 frames per second, there are few differences between these final releases of the game. Hideo Kojima opposed one change in particular relating to the player's ability to jiggle women's breasts, as Shuhei Yoshida, the CEO of Sony Interactive Entertainment, found it excessive. Kojima recalled this in an interview with Famitsu. I was contacted by Sony Computer Entertainment, who told me, we're going to decide in an upcoming meeting how many times breasts can jiggle. I argued over and over with them, saying, that's absurd. In the end, we worked things out, but I'll never forget arguing over the breast jiggle issue. In the PlayStation version of the game, the animation of the jiggling was reduced, and the player had fewer opportunities to do it. 
While Police Knots never received an official English release, there was a time when a release overseas was considered. This is confirmed by the presence of an English press release on Konami's official website in 1996, claiming the game to be a sequel to Kojima's Snatcher on the Sega Saturn. The game also had an English mock-up cover shot produced and printed in several promotional pamphlets for Sega games packed with other Saturn titles. However, according to translator Jeremy Blaustein, who had worked on the official translation of both Snatcher and Metal Gear Solid, rumours of an official, partially completed Police Nords translation script were false. He said, It's false as far as I know. I was in the international business department at Konami when it came out, and I never heard of any plans to release in the US then or since. Contradicting this, according to Kojima, the international version was worked on, but the developers weren't able to sync the game's English dialogue with the animated cutscenes, though the legitimacy of this claim cannot be confirmed. While the game ultimately never saw a North American release, in the end it would be up to the fans to create their own translation, the first of which being the PlayStation version of the game. The project had a long development period, with Mark Laidlaw, not to be confused with the writer of Half-Life, and Artemio Urbina translating much of the dialogue. They worked on this in the summer of 2007, but encountered problems when it came to programming their translation into the game itself. It would be a year before something awful forum user Slow Beef began working on getting the script inserted into the game, leading to a revival of the project which would come to completion in 2009. Despite the PlayStation version being considered an inferior release to the Saturn, it would be a number of years before another translation would surface for the Sega console instead, once again built upon the translation work from Mark Laidlaw. In October of 1998, Asmic Ace Entertainment developed and published a game that to this day still perplexes the gaming community. LSD Dream Emulator is an obscure title that nobody in the West could play at the time of its release, but has since picked up a small cult following. We'll start our coverage with a quick look at LSD's gameplay. LSD is controlled from a first-person perspective and has the player explore surreal environments. With no interactive objects, the game simply allows the player to move around the environments with simple navigation controls. The game's purpose is simple, to explore. It's possible to teleport to different environments by walking into various objects. The object itself isn't important, however, as everything will teleport the player, including walls. This teleportation is known as linking, and it's believed that walking into living creatures or surreal items will link the player to more obscure locations. The game's premise sees the player walking around a dream world. The world was conceived by the mind of Hiroko Nishikawa, an artist at Asmic Ace Entertainment who kept a journal of her dreams for over a decade. Osamu Sato, the game's director, took those dreams and conceived mechanics that would let people explore such a world. Dreams come to an end automatically after around 10 minutes. There are other ways of ending a dream, however, such as falling off of a cliff. After a dream has ended and the player has woken up, they are presented with a graph. This graph is designed to keep track of the player's dreams and will reveal the overall theme of the dreams they've had. These are tracked as upper, downer, static, and dynamic. It's also believed that previously played dreams can have an impact on the player's subsequent dreams. The graph may be based on the actions taken while sleeping, but which slot on the graph is filled seems almost arbitrary, as constantly moving or staying still has little effect on the dynamic and static trackers. 
Environments found in the game can change on a regular basis. The dream world is made up of a static map that doesn't change, and tunnels allow the player to travel between areas. Navigation is inconsistent, however, as walking into the same object multiple times can teleport the player to different locations. On top of that, the textures in each environment can also change. These textures may even change while the player is near them, such as eyes appearing on walls that stare at the player. After a number of days dreaming, the game allows the player to re-explore old dreams. This is one of the only ways to see the same dream twice, as the game's randomized nature doesn't allow for easily repeated interactions. While normal dreams last 10 minutes, revisited dreams seem to only last around 3 minutes. Some dreams are non-interactive, and are just videos the player can watch. These are so far-fetched that they only serve to increase the confusing nature of the game. Some dreams even remove the video aspect altogether, and are simply black screens with Japanese characters covering them. These screens tell stories, and can often seem to make little sense. The game's producer, Osamu Sato, wrote the soundtrack for the game himself. The game contains over 500 different patterns of music, which change depending on the dream's theme. These patterns are just a number of variations of the same simple tunes, and use a collection of different electronic sound effects. The soundtrack was given away with the limited edition release of the game as a bonus CD called Lucy in the Sky with Dynamites. This is a parody of the Beatles track Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which was also known for having the acronym LSD, albeit unintentionally. A book containing excerpts of the Dream Journal, written by Nishikawa, was also given away with this limited edition release. Each excerpt is presented alongside a piece of artwork, created by various artists. A second album of the game's soundtrack was released on two CDs in Japan, under the Japanese techno label Music Mine. Titled LSD and Remixes, not only does this soundtrack include music found in the game, but also features remixes performed by multiple artists. This includes British IDM pioneer Mike Paradinus, Finnish jazz performer Jimmy Tenor, and Japanese DJ Ken Ishii. Many people incorrectly took the game's title, LSD, to be a reference to the drug Lysergic Acid Dithylamide, also known by the street name Acid or LSD. This is likely because of the game's trippy nature, which parallels the effects of taking LSD. The title's LSD acronym is given different meanings throughout the game and related material, but at no point is it stated to be a reference to drugs. The acronyms that are actually used include In Life, The Sensuous Dream, and In Limbo, The Silent Dream. It's commonly believed that the game has no ending. Some players found a file titled ending.str on the game's disc, which is a type of PlayStation video file. This led to discovering that, after going through 365 different dreams, the game will actually play this file. However, the video itself is confusing, and seems to have no relevance to anything in the game. It is speculated that the video symbolizes a Hatsuyumi. In Japanese culture, a Hatsuyumi is the first dream somebody has in a new year. It's considered good luck to dream of three things in particular, Mount Fuji, a hawk, and an eggplant, the three items shown in the game's ending. After the clip is finished, the day counter seen on the game's main menu will reset back to day one. The game received a cult following after Let's Play videos began to surface on YouTube in 2009. Players were intrigued by the strange and confusing worlds they were shown. One fan of the game, Figglewatts, even created an unofficial remake of the game called LSD Revamped. Still in early alpha, the unofficial remake plans to introduce new features such as original areas and mod support. The reason for the game's lack of localization in the West has never been confirmed. However, it's possible that there simply wasn't a market for this type of game in the 1990s. 
1990s. Osamu Sato had previously created a game called Eastern Mind, The Lost Souls of Tong Nao. The game had a similarly bizarre presentation, and is believed to have sold poorly in the West. The title even had a sequel, Chu Teng, that never left Japan. It's possible that the poor sales of Eastern Mind in the West indicated that it wouldn't be worth the investment to release LSD and Chu Teng outside of Japan. However, LSD did receive a digital release on PSN in 2010, again restricted only to Japan. With digital distribution allowing for publishers to release region-locked titles to wider audiences for little investment, it seems curious that the game never made it to digital stores in the West. The once-Japan exclusive, Shoeniki Kyukyoko Muteki Jinja Saikyo Otoko, was released on the US PlayStation Store in 2010. Interestingly, the game was untouched, and had all of its original Japanese text intact. This seems to relate to Sony's policies regarding PS1 classics on the PlayStation Store. Previously, Capcom had issues with a Sony policy that didn't allow changes to be made to PS1 classics. Capcom wanted to modify several textures to remove previous product placement in Mega Man Legends, but ended up resolving the legal issues with the copyright holders instead. Shoeniki's lack of translation lines up with this policy, and could mean that Japanese games aren't allowed to update their contents if they're published as PS1 classics in the US. If that's the case, LSD had several text-heavy dreams that would need to remain Japanese, assuming it was brought to the American PlayStation Store. If Osamu Sato believed that understanding these messages was integral to part of LSD's experience, he may have opted to not bring the game to the West. We decided to contact Osamu Sato to comment on the game's lack of localization, hoping that he could give us some insight. Sato confirmed to us that LSD never came to the West because it was expected to sell poorly outside of Japan. However, he didn't know why the game was never brought to the American PlayStation Store, and implied that that decision was down to Sony. Throughout the years creating this show, we've written about several titles that have done a great job of confusing not just you guys, but also ourselves. Games which are perhaps more experimental than the typical types of releases which received commercial publication in English-speaking territories. Some of these games have widespread acknowledgement within the wider gaming community already, such as games like LSD Dream Emulator, which puts a huge strain on all of a player's senses, the least of which is their mental capacity to identify what is actually happening. As with many Japanese artistic endeavors, the translation and relocalization of such concepts often proves hard for audiences to digest. Today, we're going to take a look at a game which still continues to baffle us, with its incredibly strange setting, gameplay, and graphics. A game which is surely created for the sole purpose of making the player feel uneasy. We'll be taking a look at Paranoia Scape. Released for the Sony PlayStation in 1998, Paranoia Scape is the only game ever to be developed and published by Matilda, a company that was likely founded specifically just to create this title. Before talking about the game, we should explain some of the mental thought that went behind its creation. One name in particular stands out amongst the credits, and indeed above the game's title on the front cover, Screaming Mad George. Credited with the game's creature design, music, and concept, Screaming Mad George is a person that deserves the brunt of our attention. Screaming Mad George is the nickname of Joji Tani, a Japanese man who emigrated to the United States. 
His works are rather noteworthy within the film industry, with his specialist skills working on special effects and makeup, not somebody with any experience creating video games. He had taken on the name of George in order to stand out amongst the crowd, and when moving to the US, changed his moniker to Screaming Mad George in order to further distinguish himself. His career started with music, taking center stage as the vocalist for the late 70s New York shock punk band The Mad. This band's success, and the shock value from their gory music videos, led to him transitioning to the silver screen, with notable starts such as Big Trouble in Little China and the original Predator. He would even go on to direct his own film in 91, The Giver, which had to be recut by New Line Cinema in order to remove some of his wicked sense of humour. The truth is, George has a passion for the bizarre and the shock of gore within art, working with artists that he likely has a keen interest in himself, such as assisting in the music videos for Cypress Hill's Dr. Green Thumb or Nine Inch Nails' Closer. Putting it bluntly, Screaming Mad George loves designing disturbing creatures and visuals, using a style that he calls anti-realism. Perhaps George's most seen designs within the music industry, though likely unrecognized as his creation, is his work forming the faces and masks of the band Slipknot. George's work is most recognizably handmade, with digital artist tools being left aside. So, with this being a show about regional exclusive games, perhaps it's time that we look at what Screaming Mad George had to offer the video game industry. If a hugely influential artist within the special effects industry was to create a game, one particular genre is unlikely to be the first idea that springs to mind. Pinball. One thing that this title does to differentiate itself from typical pinball titles, however, is changing the game's perspective to be entirely within the first person. The player's perspective comes from behind the game's flippers, but on top of that, the player is also capable of moving around, not just side to side, but also back and forth. However, the camera's orientation is fixed. In regards to the game's plot, there actually is one, though it cannot be found within the game itself, only the instruction manual. In Makai, or the Demon World, there has been a struggle to find a suitable replacement for the Demon King. It is decided that a replacement would need to be recruited from the Makai citizens, so in order to identify suitable candidates, the Makai government conducted tests and screened the applicants. Two skeleton brothers from the countryside are finally selected, and the reigning king told these brothers that while they may have managed to get this far in the tests, the final test is in the paranoia escape. Only then can they reign as the demon king's true successor. The brothers obtained the Tobanejo, a flipper bat that has been handed down through the Makai since ancient times. The game's general goal is to rack up points whilst also trying to get to the end of a linear stage, making sure to keep the ball, known as the brain ball, in play in front of the player, never allowing it to fall behind. 
In total, the game contains nine stages, each having their own specified goal. While the first level requires the player to merely reach the end of the stage, the game's second level introduces a boss that must be defeated before progressing. This isn't quite as simple as any typical pinball game that has broached this concept, as the player also has a life bar which can deplete from damage. While it is mostly simple to avoid being damaged, there are a number of creatures within this world that wish to harm you and the player must keep their wits about them. Fans of the pinball genre won't find the title's gameplay to be particularly alluring. There's little in the way of unique mechanics to the game besides its perspective, with paddles being the only real sense of control otherwise. However, Paranoiascape clearly was not created to define itself as the pinnacle of the genre. Playing the title, it isn't the craft of code that makes up all of its merits, but the world created from the strange mind of Screaming Mad George. A world where the walls have literal ears, the floor seems only too keen to scream at you as you attempt to pass over it, and the sky watches you as you navigate a corridor of filth. Needless to say, the game's visuals are possibly some of the most nightmarish of their generation, and even today leaves an unsettling feeling. There are so many elements to build up what makes this game's setting seem so unnatural, and trying to define the style of horror that the game encompasses is almost impossible. The only way of describing it is to take a page of George's own dictionary and simply summarize it as anti-realistic. As you'd expect from somebody who gives themselves the title of Screaming Mad, the game is not simply horrific or disgusting, but also rather humorous, something that lends itself to its surreal nature, backed up once again by the odd choice to have the player explore this designed world through the genre of pinball. The game's audio also lends itself to the brutal domination of one's senses, with creatures making strange, unnatural noises over the musical vibes of punk rock and industrial. The game's last stage takes a strange turn from the rest of the title, putting the player in control of some sort of amalgamation of a baby on wheels from a top-down perspective, as they recover the souls of both a king and queen and put them to rest, before they appear to be reborn as the origin of life. A new life is established, and we are told this is the end of Screaming Mad George's surreal world. Paranoiascape's name comes from the title of a song created by Screaming Mad George and Psychosis, created in 1992, six years before this game's creation. Screaming Mad George hasn't spoken at much length about the game's existence, with what appears to be the only direct reference to its existence on his own website found in his full library of creations. Interestingly, however, he mentions that the game doesn't simply serve as playable software on the Sony PlayStation, but that it also serves as a playable audio CD. Some film fanatics may actually notice references to some of George's earlier works, like the 1989 film Society, with several images seemingly taken directly from the title, like a face found in place of a butthole. George himself even appears within the game as a giant face that appears in the sky. In our view, Paranoiascape is not a game which warrants any particularly substantial price tag. The game is basic and considerably short, even by retro standards. A typical playthrough could be completed in a mere half hour. But what the player experiences isn't something so simply defined as just another pinball game, but really a work of art. 
since we saw this game's existence several years ago, it's continued to hold a place within our minds, and we could never get it out. Despite the game's ending leaving the player with a to-be-continued, until-next-time message, no sequel was ever created. In regards to why this game wasn't released internationally, it does beg for some clear reasoning. Screaming Mad George may have been born in Japan, but his work as an artist definitely thrived within the United States. However, as Paranoia Escape remains exclusive within Japan, the only reasoning that we've been able to come to was that the game was simply far too experimental as a concept for Sony of America. Or perhaps, George was more interested in creating the product in the gaming space for its artistic merits, rather than as a profitable commercial venture, not wishing to try and localize the game outside of Japan. However, with this said, by looking through the game's data, it's possible to uncover audio of George himself. As previously mentioned, during the game, George appears as a head in the sky, guiding the player as they make guesses on how to progress past a series of faces. Hitting the incorrect face has him talk to the player in Japanese. Hello. However, looking through the data, unused audio of English can also be found. Go forward, man! Come on, go straight ahead! Suggesting that there was at least some consideration of an English release at some stage of development. Each voice sample has a corresponding English version, making it highly likely that these were recorded with the intention of being used in an English release. We attempted to contact Screaming Mad George several weeks ago and received a response from his PR company, who said they would pass our questions on to him. However, as we have not heard anything back, we can only assume that George is currently preoccupied. This video was created during the coronavirus lockdown, so it's possible that he is just simply unable to find the time to get back to us. If we do receive a response, we will pin a comment with his answers to our questions. Be sure to follow Did You Know Gaming on Twitter, and we will update you if we hear anything back. Did you also know that it's possible to 100% complete Mario 64 by only pressing the jump button 37 times with glitches? Or that the Sonic series didn't get past the first game's title screen without having a glitch? For more facts, check out the Did You Know Gaming videos on glitches. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.